We are back, and while we generally talk about obituaries in segment three when we do, and we often do, we're going to move Paul Harvey up to segment two, because Paul Harvey was without a doubt a giant of radio. It's reported that his peak audience was the greatest audience any radio commentator has ever had, 22 million listeners. At his peak, he was heard on 12 100 radio stations and 400 more on via Armed Services Radio. Paul Harvey was actually a family affair. His wife was his longtime producer, and his son wrote the scripts for those rest of the story bits that were his trademark. Paul Harvey died surrounded by family at a hospital in Phoenix where he had a winter home. I got a call from my neighbor Lino a few nights ago saying... Doc, I just wanted you to know, Paul Harvey passed away. And I'm sorry to report that we did actually have a local uh, angle on Mr. Harvey. He had a home up in the Roseville area. And an office uh, staff member uh, in the clinic I work in out, out in Roseville, and I, yes, I sometimes still do work as a doctor, was in fact a neighbor of Paul Harvey. I guess he had some relatives in this region and probably had houses all over the country. He was based mainly in Chicago. Unfortunately, she didn't know him very well and would just say hello from time to time. And I kept saying, you know, find me a way to interview Paul Harvey. He's a radio legend. I'd love to do it. Alas, it shall never be. But we may have a chance to get uh, Paul Jr. Uh, on the show at some point, and I think that would be an, an interesting chat. So we're going we're gonna to see what we can do. I'd like to quote a bit from his obituary. Paul Harvey, the news commentator and talk radio pioneer whose staccato style made him one of the nation's most familiar voices, died Saturday in Arizona. He was 90. Mr. Harvey worked for ABC Radio News for over 50 years. Harvey had been forced off the air for several months in 2001 because of a virus that weakened a vocal cord, but he returned to work in Chicago and rather astoundingly was given a 10-year radio contract at age 82. His wife, Lynn, whom he used to call Angel in his broadcasts, uh, was his longtime producer. Lynn Harvey is credited with developing some of her husband's best-known broadcast features, including the rest of the story. She herself was the first producer to enter the National Radio Hall of Fame. Of course, it may not have hurt that she was a founding member of the board of the Museum of Broadcast Communications, home of the Hall of Fame. Bruce Dumont, the museum founder and president, noted that Mrs. Harvey had set aside her on-air radio aspirations to work as a producer for Paul Harvey, and that she was to Paul Harvey what Colonel Parker was to Elvis Presley. Paul Harvey Jr. was quoted as saying, My father and mother created from thin air what one day became radio and television news. So in the past year, an industry has lost its godparents, Lynn passed away last April, 
and today millions have lost a friend. Noted the obit, known for his resonant voice and trademark delivery of the rest of the story, Paul Harvey had been heard nationally since 1951 when he began his news and comment for ABC Radio Networks. He became a heartland icon, delivering news and commentary with a distinctive Midwestern flavor. Stand by for news, he told his listeners. Harvey was credited with inventing or popularizing terms such as skyjacker, Reaganomics, and guesstimate. Larry King once said about Paul Harvey that, you know, you may not agree with his politics, but when his voice comes on, you don't reach down and push the button. Like his wife, he too, of course, was an inductee in the Radio Hall of Fame. In 2005, Paul Harvey was one of 14 notables chosen as recipients of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I must confess, I I frequently had great issues with the reporting of Paul Harvey. I remember him defending the tobacco industry when they were accused of uh, manipulating um, nicotine levels to make cigarettes more addicting. When they managed to somehow win some court battle, which I think hinged on whether they'd done it deliberately, Harvey got on the air and said, well, I hope this will keep people from making accusations like this again in the future. He did one particularly scurrilous bit of reporting after 9-11, which seemed to, of course, blame everything on, yes, Bill Clinton. On the other hand, you know, as Larry King said, when his voice came on, I certainly did not reach down and push the button. His, the rest of the story are just, you know, from, from a radio perspective, you know, they're just little gems. The son wrote them, the dad performed them, but, you know, they are, in their own way, masterpieces. Of course, if you knew the actual story being spoken about, you knew that sometimes, let's just say, artistic liberties were taken. But the guy simply was a giant. And I'm sure, dear listener, if you've listened to radio at all over the years, in in some way, you know, you have crossed paths with Mr. Harvey. One day in in 1976, I guess it was, I was driving around, I don't remember where, somewhere in the Central Valley here in my car when I heard from Paul Harvey about some strange goings-on down in Chowchilla, which was something effective, Dateline, Chowchilla, California. A school bus containing students has gone missing. And yes, it was a huge national news story, but Paul Harvey was right there on top of it. This is why one reason I think I'm, I'm going on a bit about him, because, well, we have, uh, maybe not consciously, but nevertheless have imitated his modus operandi. Paul Harvey would get up in the morning, I guess he would, he, well, he'd get up at 3.30 in the morning, and that's one thing I don't imitate. He'd have a bowl of oatmeal, then start combing the news wires for items that he thought people would find interesting or, sh- or things they should know about. He'd get on the phone and speak with editors across the country in search of succinct tales of American life for his program. Right or wrong, Paul Harvey would, you know, make the call on what he was going to talk about and how he was going to talk about it. His fans identified with his plain-spoken political commentary, but critics called him an out-of-touch conservative. Back in the early 50s, Harvey was an early supporter of the late Senator Joseph McCarthy and a longtime backer of the Vietnam War. To his credit, in 1970, what was perhaps his most famous broadcast, he abandoned that pro-war stance and announced his opposition to President Richard Nixon's expansion of the war and urged him to get out completely. Said Harvey, Mr. President, I love you, but you're wrong. 
That shocked his faithful listeners and drew a barrage of letters and phone calls, including one from the White House. In 1976, he moved away from just purely doing news and commentary into those anecdotal descriptions of the lives of famous people. The rest of the story. I can remember very well being in Malaysia. I was on Penang Island, taking a long extended trip around the world. And when you leave the country for 49 weeks, you kind of chew through a lot of reading material. Of course, wherever you are in the world, you can generally find book exchanges and bookstores, etc. And I remember going down and snagging uh, a copy of more of Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. I've still got it, and I have to agree with the review on the cover that says, reading Paul Harvey's stories is like eating potato chips. You can't read one and simply stop. But he could be a polarizing figure, and I think, uh, to be fair, I should quote from, from some obituaries from people who weren't necessarily fans. Ken Lane, writing on AOLnews.com, had the following to say. He had a face for radio and the political compass of the Inquisition. Born to a long line of Baptist preachers, he became the biggest snake oil salesman of them all. While Paul Harvey was long mocked by hipsters and comedians, he sure wasn't hated. In fact, Paul Harvey was one of the most admired people in America for a half century. Rush Limbaugh, conversely, is despised by most Americans, while his only fans are mouth-breathing angry losers. So, farewell, Paul Harvey. Farewell to your odd little stories, outrageously twisted wingnut version of current events, and the commercials you wove so seamlessly into your, quote, news, unquote, that the old and feeble-minded could never really know if those mattresses and mail-order radio sets were part of the day's headlines or not. And, uh, you know, that that was a bit of a sore point with uh, friends of mine. Traveling buddy of mine, in fact, he and I are going to Central America tomorrow, said a couple years ago when I once praised Paul Harvey, you know, I really don't agree, said Gordon. About five seconds of him is about all I can take. Adding, and you know, he's just shameless in the way he promotes those commercial products as if they're part of the news. And I I have no doubt that uh, with Paul Harvey's endorsement, they sold a lot of those acoustic wave radios. But I can add, by way of a a, a personal anecdote, and even though I probably shouldn't, would note that uh, Harvey used to run a commercial wherein a letter was written to the mattress company, makers of an air mattress, talking about what a splendid mattress it was and how the person was sleeping so well on it and how just how comfortable, remarkably comfortable it was. That ad ran for quite a while, as I recall, and by an odd twist of fate, at one point in my life, I found myself dating the letter writer. And actually, I, I can testify to the fact that it was a comfortable mattress. And that's probably about all I should say on that topic. In summation, Paul Harvey, a giant of radio. And that's an undeniable fact whether you loved him or whether you hated him. Okay, enough said. Anyway, uh, we, we like to sometimes go out and investigate things firsthand, and, and here's a story that I need to take a look at. 20 years ago this year that the Exxon Valdez crashed on the rocks in uh, the Prince William Sound up in Alaska. It's reported in the Week magazine that, that Paul Bohm of scientific consultancy Exponent International led a survey of Prince William Sound and said, quote, We found that the remnants of the spill today are found in small patches at very few beaches. The team concluded that any oil left is not in a chemical form that makes it harmful to animals. 
The study in environmental science and technology, it is noted, received funding from the ExxonMobil Corporation. Does this, does this sound familiar? Studies are in. Appears smoking well, may not hurt you. According to research sponsored by the tobacco industry, apparently uh, scientists at Greenpeace uh, are reluctant to give the area an all clear. They said the jury's still out on whether the levels of exposure are harmful to fish and mammals. Of course, what I like is the, the photograph accompanying this article shows uh, men in hard hats uh, with steam, uh, steam hoses uh, running about steaming the oily rocks, which my understanding is accomplished exactly nothing except to look for the benefit of observers as if something was being done. In fact, uh, many have claimed that that was actually the wrong thing to do and that actually prolonged the environmental contamination. Of course, in other environmental news by pundits, we have the George F. Will column. As Earth, wor- as Earth warms or cools, climate debate gets overheated. Said Will, few phenomena generate as much heat as disputes about current orthodoxies concerning global warming. This column recently reported and commented on some developments pertinent to the debate about whether global warming is occurring and what can and should be done. That column, which expressed skepticism about some emphatic proclamations by the alarmed, took a stroll through the debris of the 1970s predictions about the near certainty of the calamitous global cooling. Well, all I can say to that is to quote former Governor Jerry Brown, who once said, that was then, this is now. George Will apparently subscribes to the theory that this whole global warming thing could be a hoax of environmentalists. Well, you might have been able to make a good case for that or, you know, at least, you know, speculate about that pretty legitimately back in, say, 1992. But that was then. This is now. Something else uh, President Obama is trying to change uh, is worthy of comment on. This comes from the intelligence report of Parade magazine, which asked the following question I think is fairly easy to answer. The question is, do terror alerts keep us safe? You know, the Homeland Security Advisory System with severe at the top, followed by high, elevated, guarded, and low. You know, one's red, one's yellow, one's green, one's chartreuse, one's purple, followed by teal and magenta. No, no, seriously, this, uh, this intelligence report had the following to say. The threat advisory chart was unveiled six months after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and critics have charged ever since that threat assessment decisions have as much to do with political expediency as with national security. You're kidding me. I'm shocked. Why, why, it appears there's gambling going on here. Note of the article, after changing hues 10 times in its first two years, the chart fell into limited use following the departure of Homeland Security Chief Tom Ridge and the system's other champion, former Attorney General John Ashcroft. Note, The national threat has not changed from yellow, that's elevated, since January of 2004. Thankfully, it appears that America's days may not be color-coded for too much longer. President Obama says that the Homeland Security Advisory System should focus on keeping us safe when information specific to a particular sector or geographic region is received. Actually, the Homeland Security Advisory System reminds me of kind of an old family joke, wherein uh, we kids would be out doing some sort of roughhousing or whatever, or doing some sort of vigorous activity, and my grandmother would counsel us, watch out! Or sometimes it was, look out! Or, 
watch your head, all of which were about equally useful for kids rolling about on hammocks and lawns. Thankfully, my grandmother never implemented an expensive system advising us that the danger was high, elevated, or guarded. But actually, if you, if you want to get involved in this controversy or non-controversy, apparently you can vote on whether you think the current threat advisory system makes you feel safer at parade.com slash intel. As we try and shuck a lot of the other uh, baggage that was left us by the previous administration, we may want to take a look at um, some of the lessons one might learn from other countries. I was quite intrigued by a book review in The Economist about uh, a book titled It's Our Turn to Eat, The Story of a Kenyan Whistleblower. Tells the story of Kenyan whistleblower John Githongo, who joined the new government of Kenyan President Kibaki, which gave him an office down the corridor in the state house and uh, gave him a free hand, supposedly, to step in and try and stop corruption. It's not a happy story. The whistleblower came to realize that the president acquiesced in corruption of the most gross kind and wound up having to flee for his life into exile. Kenya is a much smaller country than the United States. And uh, what goes on there, although there are many interesting parallels to what has happened here, it's, it's sort of simpler to analyze. In America, of course, we don't have quite the same form of tribalism that one finds in Kenya. But the parallels are made more interesting by the fact that that title, It's Our Turn to Eat, describes how, you know, when one tribe gains power, it tends to look out for the interests of its own tribe. Kenya's first president, Jomo Kenyatta, was a Kikuyu, and it was his inner circle that steadily plundered the country. After he died in 1978, his successor, Daniel Arap Moy, hailed from a much smaller Kalenjin-speaking group of tribes, reckoned it was their turn to eat. You may recall the disputed Kenyan election of a few years back, wherein uh, Mr. Kibaki held on to the presidency through a lot of electoral chicanery, and uh, his rival, Raila Odinga, who probably really won the election, became prime minister. Waiting on the sidelines is the third largest tribe in Kenya, the Luo, which curiously um, numbered among its membership Barack Obama's father. This is a book I, I may need to read, but I want to close this segment with noting that, uh, you know, be it Kenya or the U.S., things are similar. We may not have tribes here in America in the sense that they do in Africa, but we certainly have factions and we have competing interests and we have different states. I want to note uh, the Lexington column of The Economist uh, on the subject of Californication, which said the following. The 2008 election did not just put a new president in the White House. It also completed one of the biggest shifts in the regional balance of power in America's recent history, draining influence away from the once mighty South and redistributing it to the coasts. The biggest winner? America's biggest state, California. Nancy Pelosi, who's been Speaker of the House since 2007, is no longer restrained by a Republican president. Californians run two of the most powerful committees in the House, Energy and Commerce, Henry Waxman, Education and Labor, George Miller, plus an important subcommittee on intelligence, Jane Harmon. Most of the Californians act as Mrs. Pelosi's Praetorian Guard in the House, not least because she sometimes gives them a lift home on her official jet. Two of the most powerful voices in the Senate are Dianne Feinstein and Barbara Boxer. Note in the article, California number plates may not be as ubiquitous as Texan ones used to be in the White House car park. But uh, Obama has named several Californians leading positions in his administration. Well, we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, 
Personally, getting, uh, getting Texans out of Washington is a pretty good idea. Let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Along the way 